It's February 1st, 2021. This is Rook. His writing has been considered transformative in Iranian literature over the past half century, and he's one of the most accomplished figures in contemporary Persian writing. He's also a novelist and essayist who has been censored, banned, and even targeted for death by the Iranian regime. Shahriyar Mandanipur now lives in exile in the United States and continues to produce internationally recognized works of fiction, including his most recent novel, Moonbrow. He joins me for a feature chat about writing, exile, war, and love. Shahriyar Mandanipur coming up, plus Mona from Melbourne with the Persian proverb of the week, and we'll get to some of your letters as well. This is Conversations from To and About the Iranian Diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Welcome to episode number 81 of Rook, coming to you from Toronto, North America. Hope you are keeping well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. Salam, Dustan Aziz, Durud Bashawan. Coming up on this program, Shahriyar Mandanipur. He will be joining me from uh, Berkeley, California in a few minutes. This is the superb, acclaimed, and inventive Iranian novelist and essayist. His perspective is really not to be missed. His works are outstanding. His experience ranging from being on the front lines of the Iran-Iraq war to his journey west in 2006 is instructive. But uh, may I also say he was one of the 21 writers who were almost assassinated, murdered, on a bus uh, headed together to Armenia in the 1990s. This is an infamous case where the Iranian regime attempted to kill off a bunch of the most famous and dissenting Iranian writers of of the entire era, all at once on a bus trip. It's a wild and horrific story. He was on that bus. He was a main player there, and I will ask him about it. Shahriyar Mandanipur in just a few moments. Um, the Rook team is here. Hello, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Hello, the fabulous Kion. Hello, Jian. Hello, Groovy Shaya. Salam Aziza. Salam. <laughs> uh, you know, our, <laughs> our last show Thursday was so much fun. I, I loved it. I listened back and I was still laughing. We had all this like chemistry going on, you know? Not today. <laughs> Self satisfaction has set in. Fatigue to... resting on our laurels. Poor hoodie. There's, uh, it's just. You know. Maybe I should elevate it with a British accent. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. Although, I don't know if Captain Reza and the fabulous Keon know this. Uh, Shia, I happen to know, uh-huh. you you did a little skiing on the weekend. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love when a Persian artistic <laughs> uh, bohemian uh, stoner goes skiing. Uh, what, 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 uh, what did you do? Actually, it was cross-country. It's, ah. it's much easier than... Sort I, of. It's actually more... In a, in a way, yes, it's harder. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. And it, it, it was really fun. And I think it's kind of Canadian traditional that people go cross-country, no? Uh, 
No. Uh, <laughs> yes, there are people who do cross country for sure. But I love how me and Jean look at each other like, is it? Who's the new guy? Yeah. 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 Somebody talk to I'm him. I'm sure there's other parts of the world where they do this. For sure, skiing is big in Canada, mm-hmm. obviously, especially in the West with the, the, the big mountains and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in uh, cross country, yeah, absolutely. Did you ski when you were in Iran? No, no. Excellent. Because that's it's mostly just desert and camels. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Actually, but, but we have a great ski piece in Tehran, Dizin. It's a very famous. A, a ski what? Ski piece. Oh, that's a Farsi word. <laughs> a ski piece. Station. Let us go to the ski piece. <laughs> yeah, the so what? <laughs> yeah. The ski piece. Piste eskiara. What does piste mean? Yeah. I uh, think it means the trail resort. Of oh. That's not English. I did not go cross country skiing. I played a lot of Monopoly. That's that. Oh, a, okay. A leading cause of broken families is Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you played with your family. I did. Yeah. I'm still. Uh, I'm still interested in the ski piece. It. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's, it sounds like somebody who's had too much water to drink on the, while skiing has to take a ski piece. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. Huh. What did you do, Gian? What did I do? I had an oogie-free weekend. What? Yeah, yeah. A dear friend took oogie. <laughs> and uh, and so I was I was Oz odd. Actually, I went for a, a long walk. I, you know, I live near the the lake in Toronto, yes. so mm. uh, I went for a, a blustery walk by the. Uh, long, it was really great. I mean, it's it's nice to sometimes not have my French bulldog accomplice wherever I go. But I, uh, it was really nice. No ski pisting, however. <laughs> ski pisting. <laughs> Actually, I'm searching now. Is piste maybe mountain? No, I think Ma- it's that's a cool. French word. Mm. Like you, you know when you say you go to Blue Mountain, like, and then you ski there, it's kind of like the same thing. They say in Iran, they say they go to a ski piste. A piste is a marked ski run or path down a mountain in for snow skiing. In what language? In Farsi? In French. N- no, <laughs> French, French, French. Ah, French. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Shia confusing things by throwing in some French, (laughs) despite the fact that he doesn't speak French. All right, let's gather ourselves. Yisim, we are on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We are coming to you on SoundCloud, Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, CastBox, and Telegram. If you want the bilingual version of the show, if you want your little descriptors and everything in Farsi, you can go to our Telegram. It's Rook Media. Uh, but of course, for all things Rook, if you want your information, you want to see previous episodes, you want to see which guests have been on the show, rookmedia.com. And currently on the front page of rookmedia.com is Chef Haas doing his recipe from hospitality for Fesenjun sauce. Yes. Have you all practiced your making your Fesenjun? <laughs> I will this weekend. But or, um, he adds orange juice in there? Is he, that what he, I he does add orange yeah, juice. This yeah. was a... I thought everybody added that. I'd never made... <laughs> you really made did? It, so I truly thought that was the tr- way of like making Fes and June. I had no idea. On what basis did you think that? <laughs> but, but, I you just know, watched it in I, the video with us. <laughs> basically, I've yeah. never No, I never heard of that, actually. I've, I've I never... Know. That I was a surprise to me. Mm. So rookmedia.com is where you can find the Fess and June sauce. Uh, go there. Mona from Melbourne coming up with the Persian proverb of the week. Plus, we're going to get to your letters. Uh, again, some folks are not happy with us again. Uh, <laughs> well, the Picasso episode, there was a mixed bag of letters. Let's mixed just put bag it that letters. way. Listen, yeah. the Picasso episode, our highest, our most uh, 
a viewed and listened to episode wow. on at least, at least on Instagram that we've ever done. Well, in sure. one week, it's got like 70,000 wow. views on Instagram, yeah. All right, Mona coming up. We'll get to the letters. Let's get to our feature guest. My feature guest today is uh, one of the most accomplished and successful writers of contemporary Iranian literature. He's the author of 11 volumes of fiction, one nonfiction book, and more than 100 essays in literary theory, literature, and art criticism, creative writing, censorship, and social commentary. Shahriyar Mandanipur was born in Shiraz, started writing at the age of 14. He was there, of course, during the 1979 revolution, and after the onset of the Iran-Iraq War in 1980, he joined the military and volunteered for duty at the front, where he served for more than 14 months. In cement trenches and holes dug in the earth and stone, he wrote... Uh, you know, with the light of a lantern between the mortar attacks. As a result of his literary and political activities, Shahriar has been also subjected to harassment, threats, censorship, and intimidation by Iran's authorities. For a long period, from 1992 until 1997, he was unable to publish his work, including a novel and a collection of short stories. In 2006, Shahriar moved to the United States and has held fellowships at Brown University, Harvard, Boston College, as well as prominent institutions in Berlin and elsewhere. Shahriar's first novel to appear in English, Censoring an Iranian Love Story, came out about 10 years ago and was named by The New Yorker as one of the favorites of 2009, by the Cornell Daily Sun as Best Book of the Year for 2009, and by NPR as one of the best debut novels of the year. It was awarded the Athens Prize for Literature for 2011. His second book translated into English is called Moonbrow, came out a couple of years ago. It is as well a compelling, provocative, and poetic piece of writing that harkens back to the Iran-Iraq war and unrequited and mysterious love. Shahriar's works have been translated and published in 12 languages and in 14 countries throughout the world. And right now, Shahriar Mandanipur joins us from Berkeley, California today. Hello, sir. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm I'm very uh, honored, and it's a, it's it's a pleasure to get to talk to you. I spent uh, the weekend reading Moonbrow. I've been so looking forward to talking to you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much, and I would like to say hello to your audience as well. By the way, I've been watching your interviews. I know that you can speak English very well, but if you ever feel like you want to switch a little bit into Farsi, it's okay. Yeah, that's uh, the point. Is that uh, it is a long time maybe about three years that uh, since I moved to California, I, I, I haven't any chance to, to talk in English, you know. <laughs> so I wonder if I can remember the words that I need. Uh, let's do it. Uh, Shadiar, I want to focus on, on the, the, the most recent novel that came out a couple of years ago, Moonbrow, as well as on Persian literature and translation and on the reality of being a writer in exile. But l let me start with a general question to kind of situate you, perhaps. You, you've said a number of times in recent years that being an Iranian writer, or at least writing in Persian is akin to walking in a minefield. That's that's quite heavy imagery. Can you give us a sense of why you see it that way? Yeah, it came, uh, this, meta this metaphor came from my uh, experience uh, from Iran Iraq war that I was there as a uh, lieutenant. I was uh, doing my army services and there was time that we had to 
go to the enemy line or Iraqis line and uh, watch them and uh, see their movements, watch their movements and uh, something like that. And I prefer that I go with uh, my soldiers. Hmm. So at night, when I, when you walk on a mine from a, a, a field, that uh, it is said there is there is mine uh, here and there. You don't know where where the mine is. In the military, there is a uh, there is there uh, there is a, a sort of. Uh, talking to walking on the minefield. Yes. They call it uh, uh, walking like a camel, something like that. And it's so, uh, it's so funny. At night when you have just a few hours time and uh, maybe two, three kilometers, you have to walk to go from a hidden way, get close to uh, Iraqi's line. It is, uh, it was ridiculous. So at first we had to walk. And uh, when you are walking in, uh, in such a place, such a ground, then you will find out the, your heaviness. You will feel it. Yeah. And it is your death. Uh, and that's the point. I mean, the, the difficult part of it is that it, it, it's an incredibly heavy metaphor, but it's not metaphorical in the sense that you're talking about Masalan uh, getting attacked on social media or something. It, it can literally be life and death for writers uh, in Iran, depending on what you're writing, depending on what kind of activities you have. But you've also said that after you put out a few books, you still know that the minefield is there, but you boldly go ahead anyway. Is it fair to say that most Iranian writers who are in Iran know what they're getting into in terms of the possible implications with authorities, etc.? Yeah, you know, right now there are some uh, Iranian writers, some Iranian writers, they are in the jail. In the past time, a few uh, some years ago, we have uh, lost uh, a few writers. They assassinated them, Muhammad Mukhtari, Puyande, and the others. And I was even on, the, on that boss, that uh, famous boss, yeah. well-known boss, that we were heading to Armenia. Uh, it, there was a plot to kill all of us. Yes. So it was a minefield. <laughs> I'm going to get to I'm going to get to the bus and I want to I'm going to ask you about that and I'm going to return to this idea of of um, the nature of censorship, of uh, the dangers of being a, a provocative yeah. writer in Iran, etc. Let me ask you about the moment for uh, as we start this interview. I mean, it's been a global pandemic. Uh, you're in California. I know it's been hit pretty hard there. In a way, superficially at least, we would think that a pandemic is a fertile time for a writer to get to work. You can just stay in the home. You're quarantined. Have you been writing? Yeah, because most of the time, a writer is sitting be behind of his table or her table and writing. But the point is that the writer needs to go outside among the people and um, looking for new experiences, uh. looking for new characters, and even the feeling of living among the people that they could be uh, their their characters in their in their novels or short stories. Uh. Yeah, being at home. It's not bad. Sometimes 
if the rider could be active in riding, maybe it's help him not get to get uh, depression or anxiety. But uh, at the end of the day, he or she needs to go outside. Well, you know, you you have been active in recent years as a writer. Um, having read Moonbrow on the weekends, as I said, I, you know, I was hardened to read this book of yours from just a couple of years ago, not only because it's a, uh, I dare say, a tremendous piece of writing and visceral storytelling, which you're known for, but also because it is a new work. You have been prolific despite the fact that you are in exile. You are not in Iran. You know, um, we had Sharnoush Parsipur on the show not too long ago. I'm sure you know her. And it was yeah. heartbreaking to talk to her, Shahriar, because she says, uh, she told me she cannot write at all these days. She hasn't written for the last few years. When I asked her why, she said, because I'm not in Iran. I just can't write. What, what do you think of her saying that? I think I have to somehow change my attitude of writing. If I have to live outside of Iran, and if I can't uh, live without writing, I have to find out find out a way to continue writing. Otherwise, I'm I'm sure that personally it made it will make me sick. So I try to find out myself in a new life in a Western country. For uh, some a few months, uh, it was hard for me, but I found out that I have no choice. Right. I have to find out new audience, even new forms of writing. Although I'm writing in Persian, I, I insist to write in Persian. This is the pressure, the only patience that I have. But at least, at last. I have no choice to change my point of, view, point of view from Iran, if I could, to the world. You know, I have to ask you, though, I mean, again, for the, uh, I'm, I'm imagining for the average person, you would say, okay, so you're a writer, you can write if you're in Tehran, you can write if you're in Toronto, you can write if you're in a cabin somewhere in Australia. Um, it was quite a, a paradox. It was actually extraordinary on the face of it to hear this from Shahnush Parsipur. Uh, you know, in her case, just like you, she was banned in Iran. She was censored in Iran. In her yeah. case, in her case, she was in prison for years. Uh, for, uh, yet she pines to be back in Iran to find her muse. As someone who has not only been such a prolific writer, but who has studied writers, how do you react when you hear the story of someone like her, unable, crippled, unable to write when she's in California the way you are? I think it is so personal. Nobody can help you. Not even in, in an exile situation, not even in being a, a diaspora writer. Each writer uh, should find out his or her cure as well in such a situations. Hmm. It's so personal. I love Shahush and I would like to help her as much as I could. But at, at the end of the day, uh, she has to find out a way to start writing in her new life. Yeah. 
Do you understand the sentiment, though? Yeah, I had fear. I I felt it many times. I felt it at the beginning of my journey to United States. For months, I told you that I, I didn't. I couldn't do. Uh, I couldn't write anything. I, I didn't. I have uh, no um, passion even for writing. Then I found it out. Maybe I was lucky on that time because there was a. A literary uh, festival at Brown University and that year uh, Salman Rushdie and Orhan Pamuk were invited. Yes. So I found I, I, it forced me to write something and uh, something that um, I could find my audience in America. You know, there's something else that you you said in a I found in a clip of, but you never explained it, and I wanted to use this opportunity as we before we get into your actual story to ask you. You you said that no matter how many stories you've written, in fact, you say no matter how many books or, or novels or stories that a writer writes, yeah. when when you sit down to write something new, you feel weakness. What what does it mean? What feeling weakness? <laughs> yeah, you feel weakness. Because I think if I uh, feel that I am a great writer, I am so experienced writer in the world, I publish many books and stories, yeah, it, it means that I die. If a writer is thinking this way, in my opinion, uh, just uh, in Farsi, uh, hmm. and when, you are, when you are going to start a new novel or a new short story, I think I, I have to feel that I am just an ape. <laughs> uh, if I know how great or how how many masterpieces were written in, in literature all over the world, no matter short stories or novels, I know them, and I am going to write something and put it in for, put it in front of a reader that he or she can read those masterpieces. Of course, I feel weak, and I feel weak because it is my role that I have to use new forms. I, I shouldn't uh, uh, repeat myself. I shouldn't repeat the form that I am so good on them. Ah. So I am like an ape. What, what if you're a really smart and experienced ape, though? Then you can, then you have confidence. And if the story <laughs> goes well, just it is like um, Mr. Darwin should come and uh, watch uh, such a writing. If the story goes well, writing the story goes well, then your back is getting uh, getting uh, straight, straight, straight. Then you are a human being. Ah, now I understand the ape uh, yeah. example. I see what you're saying. Yeah, this is a sort of evolution when you are writing a story. Yeah. So you, so when you start a new story, you're usually hunched over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so. Uh, it is so. Uh, exciting and i got anxiety or maybe <laughs> some problems yeah it's not easy <laughs> take take me back uh take t tell us a bit about your 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 story how you got here you you're as i understand you're born in shiraz you start writing at the age of 14 before the age of 35 you officially enter the field of Iranian fiction with the collection of stories, Shadows of the Cave. And after that, you become famous with the collection of stories, The Eighth Day of the Earth. Uh, Sharia, did you always know you were going to be a writer? Did your parents know? Was it obvious to everyone? When I was 14, 15 years old, I was sure that I'm going to be a writer. I would like to be a writer. 
although there were times that I lied to my family, okay, I will be a, in, an engineer, I'm trying to be a doctor, huh. a physician, something like that. My uh, classmates, they knew, they knew that uh, I would like to write uh, stories in, in, in the composition uh, hours in high school. Uh, my teacher allowed me to write a short story instead of writing about, for instance, example, the autumn or something like that, some stupid uh, subject for uh, compositions. They let me to write the stories. And my classmates, they were good students. They were good in everything, in algebra, in, uh, in <laughs> um, uh, science. I was just good in writing. Hmm. So at that time, uh, yeah, I was start writing short stories and exercising. You become very well known uh, in your work in Iran for the use of language as not just a tool in storytelling, but as part of the story itself. And this particular look at language and the role of it is something we can see in Hussein Gorshidi's works in the 1960s and the stories of his, his students later on. I know he was a friend and mentor of yours. I, I don't read Farsi. I don't know a lot of his works, but I know he is iconic. The story is you used to travel from Shiraz to Tehran on Thursdays to meet with him and read your works for him. Tell us a bit about this relationship you had with Gol Shidi and this collaboration. When I was start writing, which was my secret, but I was sure that is my job. But I didn't want to show my uh, cheapest stories to hear to uh, to anybody, uh, and I was sure that they are not good. After years, I found out that, okay, it's the time that I, uh, that I have a good reader and a good critic to tell me what I am, do what I am doing. And by chance, I met uh, Dr. Abbas Milani at that time. He was uh, uh, a professor at our uh, uh, faculty, uh, political science. In Iran? In Iran, in Tehran University. So that was mid-70s then, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I gave one of my stories to him, and uh, he was my favorite teacher in the university. And he introduced me to Shangushiri. And it was the time that I have read many books as much as I could. And uh, I have thousands of uh, notes about how to write uh, stories and how to, about techniques and forms. So I met Gushiri, and I read one of my stories to him. And then he, he invited me to a sort of session that they had every two weeks, as I remember. And there were so good uh, writers and poets on that session uh, with Gorshin. And it was a great uh, session. So every, every few months, when I finished a story, I took a trip from Shiraz to Tehran, 1,000 kilometers. And uh, at afternoon, evenings, I started to read for them, and they were so serious in creating a story, <laughs> uh, and even Gurshiri. And it was a great time for me. Gurshiri couldn't teach me anything about techniques. I knew his techniques. But what I learned from Gurshiri is thinking about somehow 
having a second layer in your story or layers in your story, something uh, between the lines, uh, something uh, behind the words. I got it from him. He mentioned it to me when, when I read one of my stories to him. It was about earthquake. And he asked me, okay, it is about this earthquake in a, a small city in, uh, around, near, near Shiro's. What else? What could be this earthquake? Not only an earthquake, something else, something that uh, means earthquake, earthquake, for instance. I got the point at that time. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. This is fascinating because this is, that's what you're known for. So th this is if that if the tip came from Golshiri, it's a pretty big one in terms of affecting your career. You are known as a writer who writes in layers, where people have to kind of slowly uh, they as the as they're reading your novels, the layers start to fall away, and they and they learn more about wh where they're going with the story. Uh, so that started with him. He mentioned me that it is important. Ah. When you are writing a story, you don't think about the layers. You shouldn't think about the layers. You shouldn't think about that your story will work as a metaphor or a symbol. You need to write a good story, just a good story. But in the middle of the story, maybe, or at the end of the story, you could feel that this story is pointing out to something else as well, something even uh, archetypes or prototypes or some uh, event in the history or maybe uh, somebody in the history as right. for instance as shows the job by Gurshir is doing it right the second layer it is a, a prince but it could be any <laughs> any kind of dictators as well you know overthrown dictators as well hmm. so yeah before it I was knowing about the layers, but the way that he critics my stories and talk about them, I found out, oh, how deep an story could be. It, it was so helpful, yeah. So in the period after that, the, the revolution happens, of course, in 1979. And I have to say, you know, learning about you, reading your work, um, understanding your canon and all the, all that you've done and written about and 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 represented over the years it's a very interesting turn in your story that you you weren't just conscripted for the war you volunteered to go uh into the iran iraq war uh, tell tell me about someone who was a i'm guessing a self-proclaimed anti-war kind of writer who joins a war effort <laughs> what that was like for you yeah yeah I have a story uh, about it. Uh, don't, uh, <laughs> when you are reviewing, uh, uh, interviewing a, a writer, uh, be careful that because they will tell you stories. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, that's okay. Looking for <laughs> somebody to listen to their stories. I have a short story about it. Please. When I was about 14, 15 years, I met three promises. Never get, uh, never smoke a cigarette, never get married, 
I never go to my army services. It was before the war. Uh, I was playing uh, soccer and love playing uh, football, as Irania used to say. And uh, I was trying to be a rider. And I know that the rider, if we, I, I get married, uh, there would be some problem and uh, not problem. There would be another kind of life. So, but uh, when I was 19 years old, I started smoking one pack a day. Mm. At age 22, I got married. <laughs> oh, and Boy. then the third promise, it was, I had to go to um, doing my army services for two years, nothing doing in a, in a base, just uh, marching and marching. But at that time, the war was started. And Iraq army was in uh, my country. They uh, uh, invaded uh, to, to, to my country. And if I told myself, Sherry, it is uh, two jobs. Uh, the enemy is coming further, further and further. And uh, meanwhile, you are a writer. And there is a, there is a war over there. So you have to be there. Hmm. to see, although you hate war, and although you, I'm sure if I would, uh, if I, there would be a time that uh, I, will, I would be face to face an Iraqi in, with an Iraqi soldier, it couldn't be me to take the first one. But uh, I have to be there. So I introduced myself to, as I, to army services, and I was uh, lucky they sent me to a base in Shiraz. And <laughs> it was, uh, my job was teaching soldiers, new soldiers. But I found out that it's not my job. So I wrote a letter to my commander and I write that I would like to go to the uh, Iran-Iraq front line. Wow. And after two or three letters, he sent me it is another story. Send me somewhere to uh, to a front line in Kurdistan. I said I don't go there. I don't want to kill Iranian peoples, particularly Kurds. So I left the army. I escaped, and for months I wasn't uh, a soldier, living somewhere, not even in my house. And then when I found that that uh, unit, uh, they moved to Iran-Iraq war, war uh, field. Then I went back uh, <laughs> to the base and I said, okay, here we go. Uh, let, let me go to that front line. Yeah, it is a, a long story, I'll tell you. But why were you, uh, forgive me for asking extremely simple questions, but why were you not afraid to go to the front line? I don't know. I think it is a job for a rider. In the war, as a rider, you can find out the beauties, how much beautiful life is. Uh, maybe I felt it. And uh, I'm not regretful because I found out, you know, when you are living for months, for instance, for officers, uh, it takes about 20 days. There were times that one month I couldn't go to the 
um, to the city to a city and have uh, take a bath. And for month for one month you are just walking on on the stones of a mountain. You don't know how much pleasure it has when you walk on on a flat surface. When you walk on an asphalt or working on a uh, sidewalk without any stone on the, on, <laughs> on the, uh, under your feet. It's so wow. simple. It is a simple example. It's so remarkable, this, because, first of all, it's counterintuitive. You wouldn't think that the writer would say that going to the front lines of a war is where the writer should be. But uh, especially, you're, I mean, you're not a journalist. You're a, you're a, you write fiction. You write stories. You write, but this is, this is a... I'm consistent now through this interview because when I asked you about the pandemic, you also said the one problem with it is I can't I can't get out there and be part of. You see being a writer as needing to see and experience and be in the middle of things, right? It was my style of writing to be uh, here and there everywhere that. Uh, there was a disaster or people in, are suffering. It's a bit masochistic, though, to say, well, I, I'm going to go to involve myself in horrible things so that I can be a, so that I have, <laughs> so that I can, uh, it'll, you know, uh, benefit my writing. Yeah, it, it is it's something, it is, uh, on the other hand, it is. But uh, it was the philosophy of my writing that although I'm a formalist, I am, although, I think uh, writing a story is not in just language and making uh, writing in a beautiful language. But the subject of a story, it shouldn't come from uh, living in an uh, in apartment, in is isolation situation. Uh, I called it the apartment stories. I'm, I'm trying to write about it. The stories that they are writing in his apartment and the writer is just living in an apartment, not outside. <laughs> right, right. There was an earthquake on the north part of Iran, in Rudbar and uh, the other cities. 80,000 people died and that, that the night. Yes. Uh, I went there and wow. uh, it wasn't it wasn't easy. When I was at war, I, I was, I saw the ruined cities. But Shahriya, so, so, so much of what you write about is love. You, yeah, you, you, I went to the road war. It was more tragic for me than a city that it was ruined in the, in the war. The ruins of earthquake was so uh, more uh, sad for me, make me more sad, melancholy, and even uh, give me a sort of uh, absurdness. Life is, is so absurd in, in in earthquake, you know. So it was so hard for me. But I write about it in my novel, the courage of love. Okay. Well, I was going to say uh, how um, there there's romance, there's there's unrequited love, but there's love in a lot of what you write. How do we reconcile that with? the experiences of going to see an earthquake or the front lines of a war or these kind of traumatic experiences. Yeah, yeah. When you are at the war, you even uh, miss the colors because everything is uh, at the color and the color of the ground, the soil, even our clothes. 
you, your mind is looking for, for instance, a beautiful red shoe of a girl or uh, the color of uh, the curtains of a window. You do, you, you miss these things. <sighs> so at that time, even you feel that, oh, how many loves, how many opportunities of being a lover or being loved I have missed. And <laughs> you think about love. You feel how much important love is. Yeah, in, uh, just in the heart of darkness of the world, in the heart of the violence of the world, you feel the love, how much precious it is. And uh, not only in, in the novel, the courage of love, even in Mumbra or Mahpishani or Akrab Kishin in Farsi, uh, it is war and love, war and love. Yes, yes, yeah. It is so beautiful what you've just said and it makes so much sense and yet i've i don't know that i've ever thought about it in that way that um when things are the darkest and, and, and even in the way you're describing it in terms of black and white is when your appreciation for love and the colors of love would be the the most powerful um huh yeah, yeah. You know, if we're talking about horrible experiences, let me let me ask you about that experience on the bus that you referenced a few minutes back. I mean, as the as the 1980s go on, you start to become a, a writer and a, and a well-known writer by the late 80s and into the early 90s. Then you do get banned, you get censored. Nevertheless, you're known in, your, in Iran. And you are one of the 21 writers who ends up on this bus en route to a poetry conference in Armenia in the summer of 1996. And there was this unsuccessful attempt to kill the busload of, of all of you at two in the, in the morning while most of the passengers were sleeping uh, when the, the driver of the bus, as I understand it, attempts to steer it off the, off the cliff near the Heyron Pass. This is a, a, now an infamous story. Um, you were there, you were, that could have been you, that could have been the end. How did that traumatic event affect you, Sharia? It was so insulting for me. This is, this, that was the first feeling that I had, that it, I, I, too much insulted. They insulting me as a human being. Um, the fear of death was over there, okay, everybody has it. But I felt that they are, they were going to kill us like lambs. You know, before the, we started the, the trip, Mr. Kushan um, called me, I was living in Shiraz, and called me that uh, there is a plan to go to Armenia, and we are two near of us, and you will be one of them. I asked him, uh, are, are you sure what, what are we going to do? Uh, do you think that uh, on the way a big truck comes to us and um, open its hogs as a welcome? He said, "No, you you think you are just thinking about Toriyotote um, conspiracy theory." So I thought that they are, yeah, they are living in Tehran. Gushir is there. He checked with uh, Armenian. Uh, embassy and the other riders are there so they knew better than me 
we started the trip. And one of us, he wasn't on the trip, on the bus, but he told us, they will send you, all of you, to the death of the valley. Don't take this trip. Huh. But, um, but he didn't, we didn't listen to it. Because I, mean, I felt so insulted, even from myself. We, did, we wasn't enough smart at that time. When we got to the in the bus, because one of my friends and I, we used to take buses from Shiraz to Tehran for a long uh, uh, distance trip, 1,000 kilometers. We knew that each bus should have two drivers and some help, uh, uh, a young person that helped them, give them, may help them to uh, stay awake. But this was uh, just have one driver. We didn't see this sign as well. We took the bus. And uh, I told to my friend, Mr. Tufan, so let's make um, some, let's observe this driver. I'm sure that he will fall asleep at the middle of the midnight. Can I, can I just ask you a question first, though? Why, why didn't you believe all the warnings? I mean, uh, I, I have I, no I, idea. <laughs> I no, I mean, no you, you, you've already been banned, <laughs> right? You, you, you'd been banned, you'd been censored. It, no, I, I, no, no, no. We could talk about it when we were, we were sitting around. But we were so happy. It was the first time that a group of riders, the group of us, could be together in a bus and going outside of Iran. It was it was so good for me. It was we were so happy that at last we could be together after years after years that we we were being censored and sitting in our cities here and there and being without any uh, association of riders. That happiness had blinded us. Uh-huh. Tufan and I, my friend and I, we talk about that uh, each time one of us uh, sit beside the driver and be um, watch him and not let him to fall asleep. At that time, I was uh, it was it was Mr. Tufan uh, watch, and uh, at the end of a uh, bus, I saw that he uh, turned away toward the valley and jump out. And that time I found out that it is a turtle. So Tufan grabbed the wheel. I, I got the um, handbrake and I saw how the, <laughs> the bus driver is using it. And I did it and the bus stopped at, that, uh, at the edge of the valley, at the edge of a cliff it was. Wow. And if we couldn't even go out from the passenger's door, it was opened <laughs> to the to the mouth of the valley. It uh, so we uh, get out from the driver door at that time. Oh. Yeah, I I mean, it's interesting to me that for the next ten years after you've had this attempt on your life, after you were obviously no friend of the regime, after uh, for the next few years, there's more killings of writers and intellectuals known as the chain murders of Iran. You choose to stay in Iran. You didn't leave at that point. Why not? Yeah, I, I was sure that it is my house. It is, my language is my house. 
according to it's my home uh, according to uh, one of uh, one of the Gorshi's phrase uh, he said that uh, my language is my home uh, so I was there and I took some trips and I, 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 I saw it, it was a sort at that time to invited us uh, to European countries and uh, my family was there my house was there and my riding was working well at that time no matter if it, I, I could I, I could find out the chance to write to publish or not the point was that I could write well uh, it was a time that I felt that Iran is going to be changed. I couldn't live among people at that time. I didn't talk about it so much. I didn't write about it. Uh, but at that time, I felt that it seems that there is no place for me. So I, uh, it was a good chance for me to being outside of Iran for nine months because of uh, Brown University Fellowship. Fellowship. Is this in 2006 now? Yeah, it was 2006. Yeah. But, but just just before that, let me just ask you, first of all, in terms of the, the before we leave the horrible terrorist bus incident, how, how did that affect you? Were you, um, in the aftermath of that, when you return to, I don't know where you return to, Shiraz or Tehran, I, do, do, are you a changed person? Do you suddenly feel more threatened or were you able to write after that? Tell me, tell me how the bus incident affects you. Yeah, of course, it changed somehow my mind. But uh, as you know, I was felt the death in the war. I watched the death in the earthquakes there. But that experience is uh, was something something new. What made me suffer is that we were like lambs, huh. and uh, so. But that's not you're you're not being fair to yourself. That sounds like you're blaming uh, yeah, your, yourself. Of I mean, of you, course, you, that you, I blame myself. But you couldn't but have. When I say like a lamb, I mean both of them. You know, <laughs> <laughs> on the other side. They were killing us like lamb. They were uh, trying to kill uh, kill us like lamb, and we were going there like lambs. After maybe it, it, it is it was a lesson from war for me. Don't give up. It's not your job. You have to fight. So I start to write. After a few months, after one two months later, I start writing. Maybe sadder, a little bit anxiety because I always had uh, had this uh, such a fear that um, they storm at my house and take my computer and my notes and um, whatever that I have written on papers on the uh, before I had the computer. Well, you you not only keep writing in this period, you you write first of all, you write arguably your most well known book in Iran, Violet Orient, 
this becomes uh, the the quintessential work of yeah. uh, Shahri Armand Anipur. Uh, as as you've said, by the early two thousands, you are well known. You're getting published. You have a career in Iran. You care deeply about literature in Iran. You've been the chief editor of Thursday Evening, which is one of the best and most specialized literary and intellectual magazines of its time. So. What was the precipitant to leave Iran in 2006 then? After all of this, if you stayed through the attempts on your life, through being banned and censored, through the, the war and the earthquakes, what is it that finally makes you feel, as you said a few moments ago, like you really have no place in Iran anymore? Yeah, at that time, we thought that, uh, you know, this, uh, this regime, since they uh, came to the power each year Iranians um, have such a hope that next year they wouldn't be on the, on the power we had hope at that time but before 2006 I felt that I couldn't find a good uh, enough good friends around me I couldn't find even enough uh, good people that I can trust them and I need to go outside for just I came to Brown for nine months. I didn't uh, manage to stay in the United States for a long time. I just came outside for nine months being outside of Iran, watching my country from outside of, uh, of that and take a rest and get back to Iran and start writing and trying to be public, uh, trying to publish my works. It was my plan. But then uh, when I came to Brown, and then there were some you know, um, invitations here and there. And at that time, censorship in Iran was in the most ridiculous, stupidity uh, uh, situation. Um, it, it was so much stupid at that time. And when I have a talk, for instance, in UCLA or, in, or Stanford, I felt that I, I shouldn't talk like when I was in Iran. I shouldn't talk like a writer who is talking about censorship uh, from inside of Iran. Right now, they, the people will ask me why you are talking uh, just the same as you were there. Right now, you are free to talk. You can talk. So I, I, I raised my voice uh, louder and louder against censorship. And after nine months, uh, my friends told me, you better not to get back home. Hmm. And Brown University, they helped me to stay six months more there. Then I got a fellowship at Harvard. And then, yeah, I stayed here, I stayed in the United States and stopped writing. Let me ask you about the effects of censorship, because the theme of censorship, I mean, it's obvious in censoring an Iranian love story, it's clear there, but there's also subtext of censorship in Moonbrow, uh, your more recent book, and, and it's a subject that you have written about quite a bit, obviously, as we've talked about throughout this interview. You've been censored, you've been silenced in Iran at different periods. I wonder how it affects you as a writer. I mean, do you get to a place where you are affected 
in the moment of creation where you're watching what you write as you create, almost anticipating that there's going to be censorship, even though you're now in California or at Brown or in, you know, in the West, does it, does it affect your psyche still as a writer? No, after these years, I don't think so, particularly uh, in Mumbra or Akrab Keshi in Farsi. It was published, at last it published in Persian. Oh, it did get published in Farsi, huh? I, did, I thought it wasn't published in Farsi yet. Yeah, right now it's published in London. The people can order it from the publisher and they receive it. Did censoring an Iranian love story ever come out in Iran? I don't think so, right? That that one's not Not a, yet, not yet. Uh-huh. After uh, Umbra, that in, in Persian, uh, I chose, I've chosen the uh, the title that I loved, Akrab Keshi, Smoking a Scorpion. Hmm. This is the, uh, the first title that I thought about this novel. But when uh, its English version was was going to uh, being published, my agent and the publisher asked me to choose another uh, title. In English, uh, you don't have any uh, term or word for uh, Pishuni. Uh-huh. Pishuni means a girl that there is a crescent of the moon on her. Uh, yeah, it's close with Moonbrow, but I, I, I didn't know that that's what you meant until, to be honest, I read a review where somebody said that that's what you were saying with Moonbrow. I was wondering how the the, the t- title actually fits. It's interesting that you're yeah. telling me now. Um, but we were talking about uh, censorship. So you're saying by Moonbrow, you don't feel any worries about that at this point. Yeah, no worries about it, and. Uh but I, I'm sure that my, uh, maybe it makes some more problem for me uh, in Iran, for my home or my family, but fortunately not yet. Uh, I write as in the way that I, I would like to write. And one point I would like to tell you, when I started, I had started writing Umbra or Agrab Kishi, Smoking a Scorpion, Three times. When I was in Iran, there were times that I knew that what I am going to write, it will be, be censored, and there is no chance to be published, that it would be published. But I write some short stories and even a novel. One of them there was this novel. Two times in Iran, when I was in Iran, I started to write in this novel, and I couldn't um, continue. Um, writing because I felt that something is wrong in the in the form of the story, it doesn't work well. In the second writing, after uh, sixty pages writing, I felt again that no, it's not the form of my novel. I true, I changed the point of view, but it doesn't work well. I think I was in Berlin that I got the idea that the the narrator of this novel should be two angels that according to uh, um, religious uh, uh, narrations they are sitting on our shoulders and write our good deeds and bad deeds so i found out that they are the (laughs) they are good uh, narrators for this novel and then the writing works very well in this new form of narration I, I love it. I was, I'm going to get to the two angels, actually, before we, the end of the interview. Cause, <laughs> but first of all, I mean, 
I love that you are writing with Moonbrow and with Censoring an Iranian Love Story. You're actually writing with the knowledge that this is going to be translated into English um, and a number of other languages. But it also occurs to me, I, I, I remember seeing you doing an interview somewhere where you said something like, uh, I, I can't remember which book it was, I, I'm guessing it was Censoring an Iranian Love Story, it was translated into Korean, and you were looking at the book and you don't even know how to hold the book, like which yeah, way to, yeah. you don't know how to read Korean, you know? And, and I think about how much responsibility that therefore puts on the shoulders of the translator. You, you have to, since you can't, I mean, I guess with the English you can read it, um, um, but if it's being translated in these different languages, and so much of what you, in particular, Shahriar Mandanipur does, is about the language, is about the way you tell the story, you have to really trust these translators to get it right. Is that hard for you? Yeah, of course. Fortunately, I have a good uh, translator, Ms. Sarah Khalili. Uh, she translates my source to English. I trust her so much because after years we could uh, understand uh, our, our languages. And uh, there are times that she knew even the tone of my stories, the tone of the prose, and how to transfer them to, to the English. But I have uh, no hand. I have. Uh, I. 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 I, can't, I don't have any. Um, chance to judge the, for instance, the German translation or French translation or other languages translation. I just trust my agent. It is a good agent in New York and uh, he works with good publishers in Europe for years. So, as I understood, uh, he worked with the publishers uh, they have chosen uh, good translators. For instance, uh, right now I know the German translation is okay. It's good. But yeah, I don't have any even right to ask about, to ask them to change something, particularly that I don't know the French. The, 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 the German book could be about, you know, it could be a, a novel about fishing and you wouldn't know. Yeah, and the point I, I, I made a joke about <laughs> it that I don't know if the translator uh, write his story. <laughs> that's right. That's, about my story. How that's can I right, find it that's out? That's right. How about this? If it does well in those territories, it's your story. If it does poorly, it must be the wrong story they told. <laughs> I, I should just ask you because I, I do know that a few years ago you had vowed to only publish these novels, the ones that have been published in English, in Farsi when you are able to return to Iran. So I'm guessing you changed that edict. You're okay with them being public because you're not returning to Iran anytime soon, right? Yeah, that time, year by year, I was hopeful that something would happen in Iran and I can get back home. But it doesn't, it didn't happen. So right now I'm here Unlike all of the other Iranians, I hope every day I have such a hope that uh, for Iran. But uh, I tried not to dying for depression. Uh, you know, if you have uh, depression, it means that you are living for the past. Mm. 
if you are anxiety, it means that you are living for the future. Hmm. If you have both of them, it means that you are living in Iran. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think every ride, each rider has a, a sort of depression. Uh, but I try not to be, it defeated me. I try to not to give up. And riding saved me, saved my life in many times. Well, let me, before I let you go, and you've been so generous to, you've been so kind. Thank you for the time you've given us. But let me, before I, I do let you go, ask you a little bit about politics and about being the writer in, in exile now. And I mean, you've said before that you're not a political person. You've said, I study political science and maybe because I know something about politics, I hate politics. But you know, the characters in your books, I think about the protagonists of both um, Censoring an Iranian Love Story and Moonbrow, uh, among others, they are disaffected activists. They are political. They, they also only find love after leaving political struggles behind. Can you talk a bit about the relationship that you feel between politics and love and the responsibility you may feel in the real world to Iranian people and wanting change there in your writing? Particularly when you are living in a, a country like Iran, or living in a uh, under the, a, a sort of dictatorship in other countries, each kind of story that you would write, it would be political, because the dictator would like to would like you write as he wants, as he ordered as he going to uh, <clears throat> produce the governmental riders right riders if you would if you couldn't be one of them if you be, if you uh, choose that you you don't want to be a governmental rider uh, so called riders uh, then everything that you will write in literature it, would, it should be censored and it would be against the regime. No matter what are you writing about. If you even write a love story, if you write even write about a tree, that it is in, in the spring. If, it, if you write that, that it, there is a tree that it is in a, the springtime, they will say, okay, you mean that the, the revolution, as an example, it means that the that tree is the tree of the revolution. If you write that it is uh, at autumn time and its leaves are getting gray and they get getting yellow and they are falling, yeah, you mean it? It means that the the, the, the regime is falling down. Hmm. You mean everything? Everything that you write in pure literature, not that that kind of governmental literature, so-called governmental literature. So that one is dangerous for them. So, Yanni, you're, you're in a bit of a cage. Whether you want, yeah. whether, whether you like yeah. it or not, whatever you write is going to be considered political on some level or yeah, another. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, political. Political. But Shahriar, on, on the one hand, 
uh, it's clearly frustrating for you or it would be for anyone that no matter what you write, even as you say, if you write a, a children's story about a, a a, a balloon, the balloon will be seen as an allegory for the, the regime in Iran or something if it bursts, etc. Uh, but at the same time, I, I suspect you probably feel pressure um, or you may have experienced this from the other side, which is people in the diaspora, others in exile, who believe that any artist should be speaking out and that it is your duty somehow to be political and to, you know, speak out against this regime. Do you feel that kind of pressure? I tried now. I tried not to feel such a pressure, although every day I start my day with reading for years. It is, it is my, I used to, I, it is my, my habit that every day, first of all, I open my computer and read the news about Iran. And it's so, uh, you know, it's so just sad and frustrating news. And it made all my day <laughs> dark enough. Yeah. Uh, I think it is, it is, as an, an Iranian, it's my duty to read about my country and my, uh, the people uh, and uh, what's going there, what's going on there. But in writing, I, 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 don't, I don't believe any, about any engagement, as Jean Paul Sartre said, or any commitment as ideological writing. No, I don't believe in these things. It came to my mind. There are times that I, I found, for instance, I found the characters of my stories that they were in the war. <laughs> uh, and uh, when they are so alive in my mind, so I prefer to write about them because I got, it, is, it has a deep influence in, uh, influence in my mind, the war the earthquake, and this suffering of people, the suffering of people. Let me ask you about a character in the, who was in the war, Amir in Mumbrau. Um, he's missing his left arm, which we understand he lost uh, in the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, you, you've talked about how that missing left arm is allegorical, that it can be about the Iranian people. How, yeah. do, how do you see us as having lost our left arm, those of us of Iranian descent? What does it represent for you? You know, when I was writing that novel, for me, it was just losing one arm, nothing else. I didn't think that it could be a metaphor or it could be, could be a symbol. But after writing, it came to my mind that the chariot, it, it means that as well. It means that Iran has lost his left hand, the left hand that the sign of love and family could be on it, the, the ring. And uh, the other um, minutes they came after uh, you finish writing uh, the novel. But at that time, I just wanted to write about a, a young Iranian person, a lieutenant, uh, he was a watcher, and uh, right now he has just the dreams and nightmares about putting the ring in the hand of a girl. Yeah. You couldn't see the face of that girl. Who was there? Where did I do that? 
because he lost because of a mortal share uh, wave he lost a part of his mind yes his uh, memory and uh, and he said there are things that i remember but i'm not sure if i if i imagine them as very uh, as a uh, memory or or they are really my memory so uh, it was what i want to write about it i didn't want to i didn't plan to write against war no i just want to write about that love in the in the war time but the subject will force you or will guide you to write about some scene about the war as well and they came to uh, my mind for instance at the beginning of the story, I couldn't imagine that such a scene I have to write, I will write. There is an Iraqi soldier that he is just, uh, he, 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 uh, uh, yeah. he, he was burnt. Yeah. And uh, he's like, you know, his body would just uh, turn to a sort of cold. By the way, you, you, you write quite graphically too in some yeah. of these scenes. Yeah. And the. Um, Amir, the um, the first character of the novel, or the protagonist of the novel, remember a scene from the revolution when they burned, uh, a, 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 they called them prostitutes, they burned one of them and put her body, her burnt body on a, on a, on a door and uh, walking around the streets. Yes. And, as uh, as a, a sort of victory, victory of revolution. It was I, I saw that picture many years ago, and uh, it was it. I wanted to cry because for that woman, it was so it was so shameful. It is all the the faces of that people are so shameful. I I felt ashamed that I am. My faces look like them as well. I'm walking on my feet like them. It was so shameful that a, a, a woman or such a woman like that as the victory of revolution and then um, show it uh, walking march on the street and the, that the people watch it. But when I was writing that novel, when I reached to that scene about writing about that uh, burnt uh, Iraqi soldier, then that uh, picture came to my mind. I didn't plan to uh, make a parallel between them, among between them, but it came to my mind. It is the way that uh, writing works. I, I, I believe that when you are writing, a part of your writing, it comes from your subconscious. And it happens in many times in writing. So it, 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 it made it political. At that time, it was just a war story. Yes. But when it got parallel with, um, with a, a burned body of a prostitute, it would be so political. You know, I should mention to anybody who's listening to this and who 
uh, reads predominantly in English. Both Censoring an Iranian Love Story and Moonbrow are available. Um, you can get them around the world in English, actually in a number of other languages as well. And I really recommend these books to you. Uh, I think a, a lot of people who may have read you in Farsi know that those books are available as well. But um, uh, these these books are, are a treasure. Um, it has been such uh, so insightful uh, getting to talk to you and, and, and also to experience your warmth. I, I want to end with a question. I said I would get, to, uh, get back to the angels. Uh, <laughs> and you mentioned that in Moonbrow there's, there's two angels as there is in, uh, I'm not sure if it's an Iranian tradition or Islamic tradition, but there's, a, there's the angel on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder, and, and they're the writers of Moonbrow. Uh, they, they take us through, or the narrators. But one of them is imploring someone to do good deeds and the other one encouraging bad deeds. And I thought I would ask you as a final question, Shahriar, given that you probably have the two angels, one on either uh, shoulder, what is the one that is encouraging you to do bad deeds, imploring you to do? And what is the one that is encouraging you to do good deeds, telling you to do? Oh, at the middle of our conversation, I was sure that you will ask me such a smart question. <laughs> because you asked me very good questions. I was sure that at the end you will ask me this, this hard, this hard question. <laughs> it is so Felicia Cloud, Felicia yes. Uh, yo, there is no uh, define for good deeds and bad deeds. Uh, first of all, I decided that uh, the left shoulder angel will write such a, uh, not bad deeds, such a, so much um, personal things like uh, lovemaking, sex, or um, anger, or uh, hate. And the other one who could write all those things, those deeds, in other prose, in another kind of prose, a sort of maybe uh, political uh, poetical prose or a sort of uh, archaic prose at the event the, the difference between of them is just their process this was my first rule not which kind of did or good which kind of did or bad <laughs> I was I was the novel in this way this was I'm not talking about the novel anymore I, this is my twist on it for you. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was my way of asking you where you where you think you want to go next on your journey. Um, tell tell me where as we end off, where you feel like you're at. Are you content with being? Um, I mean, if one can feel content in an exilic condition, but uh, content with where you are in California now in doing the things you do um, or and, and with continuing to write uh, as you do, or, uh, or is there a next step to the journey that you've been thinking of that you would share with us? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, somehow uh, I resigned from my job teaching at Tough University it was a great university, I had a good situation for teaching with the students, but the way that I was, I must live in a room, my, my income was so uh, low and I couldn't live with it. And so I, I said, I can't do it anymore. 
and I want to write, uh, find a way just to sit someplace and just write, because I'm sure that I, uh, I won't have a long life. So I try to manage my life in uh, LA and uh, try to find uh, a way of living. Uh, I was sure that I couldn't find a job in, uh, for instance, uh, California universities, uh, not even teaching uh, creative writing, not even teaching Persian uh, uh, literature, or even I, I have taught for two years at, Tuff, at uh, Brown University, the, um, the new wave in Iranian cinema. Also. But uh, I was sure that I couldn't find a job. They, they won't give me a job. It is another story. They don't like such a person like me over there, it seems, in uh, Iranian uh, studies uh, departments here and there. Sorry, why don't they like a person like you? Yeah, I think I feel it that <laughs> they well, don't like. No, but why? Why? Why don't they like? What is it about it's you? Another and... story. It's a long story. I try to have uh, some workshops. It's good right now. Uh, I have two workshops uh, with around uh, seventeen students from all over the world, and uh, the students, the, the people from Iran, they are young and I love them. They are so smart. Uh, they read uh, more than I expected. They read the novels more than I expected. And I enjoy the teaching and working with them. You know, I call it just workshop, not a class. If the politics changed, if the government, if the regime, whatever you want to call them, uh, uh, ends up changing in Iran, would you see yourself moving back there? Uh, not so much. No, I'm I'm outside of Iran, and it is you know it is online booking workshop. But uh, talking with young people of Iran from Iran, I'm learning from them as well. Give me a sort of a sense that oh maybe right now I'm I'm a swan and I'm talking with a young person, a young a young writer in Iran, but not. Uh, it is not so strong. I feel that I am outside of Iran, and I am outside there somehow. Shiraz is in the past now. Yeah, Shiraz is in the past. <laughs> uh, Shahi Armandanipur, I, I, I once again thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate uh, all of us on this program do the time that you've, uh, uh, first of all, that uh, you, you came on the program and then the, the amount of time that you've given, the stories you've told, uh, the, the, the difficult ones and the funny ones and the, and, and the wisdom you've shared. Thank you for this. I hope this COVID situation will end so that you can get out there and do what a writer does, which apparently is go into horrible uh, war zones and earthquakes, but, uh, but also so that you can come visit us in Canada and, and, and so that we can see you before too long. Thank you for this. Thank you so much, and uh, I appreciate your, your question very good. Thank you. My right angel is telling you that I really enjoy your, the conversation with you. <laughs> well, well, I'm not going to ask what the left angel is telling you. I, I, I'll stick with the right angel. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you. Khodafis. Khodafis. Shahriar Mandanipur, one of the most accomplished and successful writers of contemporary Iranian literature. His most recent novel is entitled Moonbrow. Shahriar Mandanipur joined us from Berkeley, California today.
the Rook team reassembling here. Microphones on Captain Reza, Groovy Shy, and the fabulous Keon. Ah. Thoughts on Shahriar Mandanipur, dear Shia? Um, I, I rather to not say anything. I'm, I'm still digesting some mm. words that he says. And I love the word that it's the writer's job to... Yeah. It's wow. <laughs> but to go, to, I mean, that was a big takeaway for yeah. me for sure. There's the story of the bus. There's his whole journey, all of that. But, but the uh, the idea that I needed to go to the front lines of a war because that's where the writer should be. Oh, yeah. I mean, wow. that it's yeah. so counterintuitive, and yet it makes so much sense. The other thing I I just loved was um, his meditation on love that mm. you you have to go to the, the you have to be put if you put yourself in the worst situations that's when you really realize what love is and how important it is um and i actually like really uh, while he was saying it i was processing and if i think about it now the lowest points in my life the things i've been through it's love that is the most important thing that i've found or recognized mm. in those moments whether it's family or friends or yeah. or whatever yeah. um Captain Reza? Two things that really resonated with me with him. One was uh, obviously uh, him putting himself in the heart of danger to write about it, which really reminded me of uh, Hunter S. Thompson. I mean, he was a sports journalist, but then he, he, I don't know if you read Gonzo, but sure. he, he, w- he was that kind of person. I mean, a little bit more outrageous and, and, and crazy, but, um, but he, would, he would do that as well as a method writer, essentially put himself in that situation to write about it. And the other thing that I, I, I was actually laughing out loud when he said that, he was like, if you have depression, <laughs> you're living in the past. <laughs> if you have anxiety, <laughs> and if you, if you have both, you're living in you're Iran. Living in like you a classic the that the will, man. Yeah, that yeah. was amazing. That's that saying, I'm going to carry that with 100%. me. 100%. Yeah, yeah. That was it for brilliant. Me. Yeah. yeah that was Fabulous Keelan? You know, he made me appreciate the art of writing, so much more creative writing, and artists in general, the fact that he put himself in those positions just to feel things that would make kind of incite him to write beautiful stories. And actually, he made me realize how much we take for granted in the West just to have the ability to write whatever we want and not be thrown in jail for it. So that's yeah. that's something we need to really value. And yeah. uh, th- it brings up the topic of censorship. It's something that's even coming up in the West now. So uh, I think we need to guard it with our lives. But it was, it's, it's such an interesting twist on the way we traditionally see a writer because you know, because uh, my question in the beginning it was, oh, it's COVID, so great for you, right? Mm-hmm. You're sitting and writing, and and we've even had a couple of artists who've said that, you know, musicians or composers, or whatever. Say, oh, it hasn't been so bad for me. I'm at mm-hmm. I'm at home and write. And you have this idea of this elevated sense of an artist that is out in a cabin somewhere in a field and can just write, mm-hmm. you know, and that that would be their happy place to be away from everything. And he's saying, actually. I need to be out in in the middle of things to find my inspiration and yeah. my muse to be able to write. It's it's um, it makes so much sense, but yeah. again, it feels counterintuitive. It's beautiful. And something was very educational for me was that he says for writing a story, you have to only write a good story. Don't mm-hmm. think of layers. I mean, I translated in, for example, in music, you have to. Uh, write a good music. Don't think of layers of it. Right, right, you know? right, right. Yeah. That's a. I mean, that's a. 
a question for creators in general. Yes. How much, how cerebral are you? How much are you thinking about what you're creating while you create it, rather than just let yourself create? Yes. Um, uh, how much self-editing are you doing? Also, I should just say, I mean, for those people who aren't of a certain age and didn't grow up in Iran, um, you know, the, the bus story is not something that's at the forefront of our minds. You know, uh, I'd heard about it, obviously, and uh, but you know, you know, going back into the details of it, um, did you even did you know about this? I camp? had no idea, yeah. but I love the way he described it. He was like, I, I felt more insulted that I felt like they were treating us like lambs, and yeah. I I put myself in his position. Yeah, it's like the, to discount their lives so easily to just. And he says, everyone's lambs. They're lambs yeah. and we're lambs. Yeah. They're following or we're yeah. doing. But uh, again, Iranians who live in Iran or who are of a certain age will know this story. But it is just so incredibly horrible and so cruel, this notion that in one swath, we're going to just take out uh, an entire cohort of um, amazingly intelligent, creative, artistic people, presumably because they're just, they represent dissenting voices. It, it is, it is so horrific and it never stops being shocking. I mean, I know, I know I say this a lot, but the lengths that the Iranian authorities will have gone to uh, in the last 40 years to shut down dissent and to do this to an entire creative class, it's, uh, it's incredibly disheartening. Yeah, I, I'd never heard of that story, actually. That caught me by... That's you didn't surprising. know that, no, huh? No, I had no idea. And I lived in Iran. The, there are murders after that, too. There's chain, mur chain gang murders, which are, are infamous, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about at some point on the show. But, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, what a pleasure it was to have him on. And, um, and, and I sort of said it during the interview, but uh, uh, having just read Moonbrow, if you have a chance to, there are a couple of books that are only going to soon be available in Farsi. They haven't even been put out in Farsi, there, but they are translated into English. He wrote them with the intention of them being translated into English, um, and they're well worth reading. Censoring and Running Love Story and Moonbrow, if you have the chance, uh, you can find them on wherever you find your books and uh, they're worth checking out. All right, it is Monday. Let's get to our one of our favorite segments. She's the person behind the popular Inglisi Farsi Instagram page, but as importantly, she's the Persian priestess of Proverbs, the Australian sage of sayings, the wondrous woman of words, our resident Rook Wordsmith, and she joins us right now from Australia. She is Mona from Melbourne. <laughs> Mona. Hello, everyone. How are you? <laughs> How's Australia doing? Um, we're good. Always good. As my husband says, always good. <laughs> what are you bestowing upon our imaginations today? Um, today's a proverb, so you'll be happy to hear this week is a proverb. Okay. And how do you want to set it up for us? Um, so I'll give you some clues and see if you guys can guess. And uh, Shai and Reza, please feel free to jump in on this as well. <laughs> if we can, I, I like it. that you've just given up on me and Keon. <laughs> <laughs> it's <just> like Shai and <laughs> Reza. I guess so it's a hard one today. Actually, we've got Ponta on the line here too, so she might be oh, able to guess. Oh, fabulous! Yeah. Oh, give us some more insight. Okay. Well, this proverb also speaks of um, the cycle of life, from uh, life to death and death to life. Um, it gives us a valuable life lesson that even in the best situations, um, they have their downsides. So 
It follows, therefore, that even in bad situations, we have positive sides. So it's really talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly. So any ideas about okay, what? So even this in good could be? situations, there can be bad. Mm hmm. Jeez, that could be a lot of things. This too this, shall pass. This too shall pass. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was last week. <laughs> so I'll, I'll give you some hints. Okay. Uh, um, so it's related to flowers and specifically one flower that we see a lot in um, poetry and proverbs. The well, only thing I've heard is, as how golia bukon, which is not the best meaning. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible thing to say to a son. I, I, uh, <laughs> I never heard that. As har gol ye bukon? Like, like I've, like, I've heard like a father ironic. telling his son as har, like you know, son sample every flower. Oh, By flower like, meaning every girl, which dater. is terrible. Gol ye bichar chodas? Something like that. No, not quite. Um, so okay. she said a familiar flower. So familiar a flower that ends up in a lot of poetry. So it's a um, a, a rose. Ro yes. Oh. Yes. Oh. A lot a related to the rose. Proverb related. Have you got any? A rose and there's good 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 and bad. Um, they have thorns. Something about roses and thorns. Oh. oh, oh. Um, yes. Every Something. every every rose every rose every rose has a th has a thorn. Something every rose. Like yes. Every rose. Oh. Ah, every rose has we a got th it. We cracked the case. And, and, and so, uh, what's we the version? We have Um. So gol vachar hamisha bohamast. So. It links in with, and um, there's no rose without a thorn. Oh. Yeah. So, Shai, have you heard that? Uh, I'm looking for the poetic way of saying that. Uh, I never heard that before. Part of the artist, oh, have, really? you, have you heard that? Yes, but I, uh, I'm uh, looking for the... Uh, so, uh, you, you wouldn't say it this way. You wouldn't say... Uh, well, there's actually a few a few that talk about um, different sort of synonyms related. So there's no treasure without snakes and no flower with thorns. But this is one that this is one that's very much uh, I would imagine because we have that in English. Every rose has its thorns. You know, the, it's yeah. kind of like a way of saying nothing is perfect. You you know you're gonna have your ups and downs. So I guess you've discovered that there's versions of this in Farsi and in English and presumably in other languages. Yes, and in a few other cultures as well. So among the Jews, Christians and Muslims in the Middle Ages, um, the rose with its uh, proverbial thorns was a potent symbol of love. Um, uh, it's got the ephemeral pleasures as well as its hidden pains. So um, I did some research and according to Ambrose, um, who is uh, a church father in Milan, he lived in the fourth century, roses first grew in the Garden of Eden. And those first roses were entirely without thorns. Only after Adam and Eve disobeyed God and were expelled from the garden did these blossoms acquire their prickly defences. Mm -hmm. um, and these rose blossoms with their beauty and aroma serve as an enduring reminders of paradise, even as roses' thorns remind us that paradise has been lost. Um, according to Ambrose, the Virgin Mary is the rose without the thorns. Born free of original sin, she was free of the thorns and the sins that had pricked humankind since Eve ate from the apple. So this idea of imperfection um, is expressed teaching the relationship of, you know, having the good with the bad and we have to accept mm -hmm. that everything has its flaws. Right. Wow. See, Shia, this is why you, you should not disobey God. You <laughs> 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 committed a lot of sins over the weekend, I gotta tell you that. <laughs>
so so um, did you find the Persian saying first, the Persian proverb, and and work backwards? How how did you think of this this week? Well, it's interesting because there is like. I've got two or three um, texts that have hundreds of proverbs in it. And sometimes something just jumps out at me. And this week, um, I felt like this one really jumped out at me because, you, you know, in life we have to take the good with the bad. And sometimes we expect things to be smooth sailing. Um, but, you know, there's inevitably bumps and speed bumps along the way. So um, normally I, f- I find a proverb that speaks to me and then work backwards from there. So what's your, again, what's the, the best way to say this in Farsi? So gol vachor hamisha bohamast. Mm. You always get the the rose and the thorns uh, together. Always together, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And, so, and and how would we apply that? I guess that would be like. Uh, no, uh, I, I would. Uh, the easiest way to apply that, I think, is if you see a beautiful woman, for example, you're like every beautiful woman has its flaws. A I beautiful suppose. woman yeah. who's psychotic. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Those are the thorns. Because yeah. there's got to be don't, like don't a just negative. don't think there's no thorns, right? Yeah, exactly. And and let that be a lesson to you about the doctor as well. Just because <laughs> just because he's Where's a handsome it? doctor. I've discovered the thorns. Don't you worry. <laughs> I'll, I'll accept the thorns. <laughs> well, I was listening to your last segment, and you were talking about Persian moms, um, and we all love our Persian moms, but we got to take them with a the pinch of exaggeration. Oh, yes. so. uh, there are no thorns in my. <laughs> Loving mom, please, please. Let's have a sense of decorum. Here. There is no mom in my loving thorn. Oh, I'm joking. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mona. Um, uh, once again, we've uh, we've learned something. We've and it was great to hear the history of that too. Um, although the history is, I guess, in a lot of cases, proverbs are are steeped in religion, right? That's where they yeah. they emerge from. So it makes sense that this is you got to go back to the Garden of Eden and uh, <laughs> and the Lord. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Thank Thanks, you. Guys. Thanks for having me. Talk to you next week. Take care of yourself. That's Mona from Melbourne. Bye, Bye. Mona. Bye. Bye. Find her page at Englishy Farsi on Instagram. It is also, it is also, it is still Monday, uh, and uh, that means it is time for Letters of the Week. Yeah. It does that for everything. I feel like this should be like uh, our Friday segment, heading into the weekend. (laughs) Something to end off. Too cheerful. People are going to curse us. All right, Kian. I know you got a you got a proverbial big bag of yes, uh, yes. letters to get so, through. So it. last week on episode 79, we had Iranian kickboxing champion, entrepreneur, and social media influencer, Ahmad Moin Shirazi, a.k.a. Picasso Moin. So he shared his life story, his relationship with his religious father, and his harrowing escape from Iran after being sentenced, along with his wife, to 16 years in prison for photos they had posted on Instagram. So as I mentioned earlier, we got a lot of mail on this interview. This is um, Picasso. Yeah, he he, he certainly uh, 
created a stir. I guess he's controversial. Lots of uh, lots yeah. of uh, uh, streams, lots of people listening to it, yeah. lots of people uh, watching it, and we appreciate that. And, yeah. and I guess we got a lot of feedback. I guess it's expected. He's the son of an Ochun, so already people have their prejudices. And he's also that. a very very um, significant social media influencer. He's got a devoted fan base. He's mm-hmm. got a big a big set, a lot of people around the world who follow him and adore him. So uh, I guess we heard from both. Yeah, and I'll <laughs> okay. share them with you. All right. So uh, might I add, uh, the bulk of them are on Instagram. He has a lot of followers on Instagram. So starting with Dr. Sarina, that's her username on Instagram. And by Instagram. the way, we should mention that we get a lot of postings and mail and stuff. You're just picking a handful of them. We yes. can't read everything that everybody sends. Of, but, of course. Uh, We'd be here uh, all day. Yeah, but <laughs> thank you. If, if you don't, if the letter doesn't get read or the, your post doesn't get read, doesn't mean we don't appreciate it. We really, really like this kind of interaction. Good, bad, ugly, um, lauding, lauding, whatever you send us. We appreciate it. So we have Dr. Serena wrote, Miss Lahamisha, good job, Gian. Well, that was nice. Thank you. Now, the next one isn't, uh, uh, it's a different tone. Shabnam Asar wrote, so disappointed. You didn't do any research? <laughs> okay. And then Sadaf Dargahi wrote, even Gian didn't sound interested in the conversation. He usually sounds more excited when he talks to the diaspora people. His voice sounded more excited when Melbourne Mona came on. Is it only me who felt this way? Hmm, that's hmm. interesting. <laughs> I mean, I'm always excited when uh, Mona from Melbourne comes on, and yeah. so there, that's that part's true. I thought I was, I thought I was engaged with uh, Picasso. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I think people want are hearing what they want to hear. Mm, maybe a little yeah, bit there. I guess so. And then we have Paras two last name listed as Fah wrote. I enjoy listening to your talk show, Picasso. I always wish you and your family the best. Well, that's nice. Yeah. And then next up, we have Mehdi Sedorati wrote, We're so happy for you, Picasso. You can finally speak in a free space. Next up, we have Ali Khatami, who, uh, did, you know, he took a different tone. He wrote, I'm sure you weren't aware, but he never was a champion. He is an Aghazadeh, and that means a son of Ahund, I believe, and not an entrepreneur. All his salary is from businesses in Iran, and he says he escaped. Who can escape from Iran when sentenced to 16 years in prison with all that money? Please do some research about your guests. I hope next guest is not Amir Tatalu or Hassan Oghamiri. I'm sure if you interview yourselves, it's better than interviewing these fake champions living with the money of poor people of Iran. Uh, Funny, next week it's an entire week uh, special with Tata Lou. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. you want to maybe give us uh, the exact to what it really actually means? Uh, Shai, go yes, Aghazadeh is, is a person, is a son of a person who works in government mm. and not, not, not especially Akhun. You Got know, it. you can son of a, you know, son of an oligarch essentially. Oh. Got it. Yeah. But, um, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Whenever we bring somebody on, which some people don't like, which is every episode, <laughs> there's, always, there's always one group or another doesn't like somebody who we brought on. They say, "Do your research." It's like, well, you know, I mean, we, I have a. You know, as I was introducing Picasso, I said he's controversial, and I did ask him about some of the things that have caused some controversy. Um, but of course, we want to bring in a real wide swath of people. Uh, the balance over time. And so um, I suspect if, if somebody's on this week that you don't like, next week there'll be somebody that you do like uh, and somebody else won't like. But um, always appreciate the, uh, the feedback. 
Every rose has its thorns. Right. You see? <laughs> Excellent right, application, nice. Kion. Young Kion. <laughs> nice. So next we have Gulshan Sajod wrote, Wow, such an amazing life story. Next up we have username 12edu345 says, Rook, you disappointed me. Why have you interviewed this man? He's a big liar. Everybody knows that he and his wife are Aghazadeh and are disgusting people. Oh <laughs> All right, then we have Mehdi Hushmand wrote, As Picasso's friend, I thank you so much for sharing his story. He has one of the kindest hearts. Such a human and down-to-earth person. Okay. And then Rasinal Diaries, that's a username, wrote, The part where he was talking about his wife Shabnam and how she inspired him to win another tournament after four years. Aww. Hmm. And then Marzia Hadei wrote, I'm a huge fan of Picasso and his lovely family. To me, they're nothing but positivity, love, care, and kindness. I'm also a big fan of their awesome workout routine and healthy lifestyles. Although I knew their story, I really enjoyed listening to this interview. Kudos to the Rook team to put this interview together. That's wow, amazing how wildly varying the responses right. are huh yeah. so yeah. it's really like uh, it's really love hate yeah. I mean, it's, it it's, it's kind of uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of nuanced no. uh, opinions about this poor man um, well um, I do appreciate uh, Picasso coming on I, do, I, I, am, I thought it was uh, um, very interesting listen people tell their story and if they do so as honestly as they can or they say they are being it is up to the audience to decide whether they uh, agree or believe it or, or, or love the person or um, you know don't feel the vibe or whatever this this person is is clearly there's some um, there's something about him I'm trying to think of if we have an equivalent of Al-Azadeh in in Western culture I mean I, I guess you'd say I, I don't know like a son of a royal or something there really isn't Something where you'd say Al-Ghazadeh is, I mean, it's well, it's pejorative, right? Yeah. There's no good, there's no such thing as a good Al-Ghazadeh. Mm -hmm. no. Mm -hmm. no, it's mostly the connotation is usually negative. negative. Like, for instance, Don, uh, uh, Don, Don Jr. Jr. is technically an Al-Ghazadeh at this, like right now. Yeah, but you Not wouldn't prior. say, you wouldn't say, oh, Don Jr. I mean, there's all kinds of negative yeah. things you could say about Donald Trump Jr. But you wouldn't say, he's the son of a billionaire. Like, that yeah. wouldn't necessarily... No, no. Uh, suggest that you're saying something negative about him. But that's what I was saying, that right now that his dad became a president of the United States, politician involved with government, and he's the son of the government. But it depends on involved. how you feel about that politician. So in this case, Arazade, I think, is used mo more as a negative... Like, I haven't heard someone Hunter using it positively. Biden is an Arazade, technically. Oh. Eh. If anybody knows the answer to this, please write us. We're all confused. I'm sure they, they will. Yeah. <laughs> oh, trust me, they will. <laughs> yeah. Easy, Kion. <laughs> we already got enough mail on this. <laughs> Come to me, my pretties. Anyway, uh, thanks, thanks everybody for all your uh, all your thoughts. What was that? The last one was the letter of the day. No, oh, it, uh, okay, speaking of letter of the, right. the week, it's, it's letter of the week. Sorry, right yeah. 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 letter of the week. Chad, cut the music. It's letter of the week. Club. So the letter of the week this week. How um, dare you bring on an Arazade? <laughs> Signed. <laughs> no, actually. Most of the audience. <laughs> I got so desperate that I had to find an older episode. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm kidding. No. So this user wrote to us recently, but she, um, I believe it's, a, yes, she happened to write to us on the first episode, the very first episode oh. that we had with Hum Hamid Esmailan. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I think she, yeah, she wrote to us last week. She wrote, and uh, this is from Sasha Karma Yang Chen. 
Um, she wrote us, your interview with our most beloved Leonard Cohen got me here to discover Rook. Mm. What a journey, Mr. Romeshi. May 2021 bring better days for all of us and our Mother Earth. Looking forward to see you on screen and spreading the magic like you did once again, sir. Love from India. Wow. wow. From India, getting to Rook via my 2009 interview with Leonard Cohen. I, I, I appreciate that. Sasha, what was the full name? Sasha Karma Yang Chen. Karma Yang Chen. That sounds Chinese. Mm. Or, or well, it's got Asian. karma in it. Karma. And, she, and, and wow. she's in... Uh, uh, she's in India. She or he? Oh, he. Sasha can be a he. Sasha can be a he as well. I thought Sasha was it, a female name. It's a well, unisex mm. name. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I only heard for men. Well, really? Obama's daughter is named Sasha. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sasha maybe in person. Well, he or she <laughs> wrote a very lovely letter to us. So. <laughs> right, right. Well, that, thank you very much. That's a very kind letter, and and uh, and I'm glad you you found us on Rook, and I hope you keep listening, and I'm thrilled that you're listening from India. Thank you, the fabulous Keon. No problem. I found a rose throughout all the thorns. The, despite the, you know what? Let me just tell you something, though. Every doctor has his thorns. <laughs> all right? I'll let him know. Uh, thank you, Reza, Shia, Keon, Ponta, Mona from Melbourne. This is full time for Rook for today. I keep telling you this, but I keep wanting you to check it out because it's getting better and better all the time. Rookmedia.com is the website. Not necessarily the YouTube or Instagram or whatever. Go actually check out rookmedia.com. You can see Chef Haas's video of making uh, the, his latest recipe for fesen jun sauce there. You can check out our previous episodes, all of our guests and links to them there, and our support page, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing people who put this show together each week. Producer Susan, Ponta the Artist, Thoughtful Nagin, the fabulous Keon, Savvy Roham, Alay Merdad, Master Muhammad, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashi. 